Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Scuba. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not A Diving Podcast. My voice is a little bit scratchy this morning. It is Monday the 19th of December and the World Cup Finals yesterday and it was pretty amazing. Probably a lot of you watched it. I mean, my voice is just, uh, I think it's because of that. I think I was shouting at the screen, even though I didn't really have much of an interest really in either side. It's definitely a neutral which is mm, a strange position to be in. I mean, I, yeah, so I'm definitely a messy person in the in the Messi-Ronaldo wars. So to that extent, I was excited to see him fulfill his destiny, shall we say, and um, uh, more than happy to imagine the reaction of the other guy somewhere, <laughs> which is in a slightly unkind uh, manner, I realise. It's not really this bit in the spirit of things. But then also, as an England fan, as a sort of slightly reluctant England fan, I'm you know dual nationality, British, Irish, and uh, grew up in England. So obviously, I mean, I don't know, I've never been super into the England team, but like the, the historic bad blood between Argentina and England. In a sporting way, I don't want to get into the... Uh, political stuff which is just lame and like anyway it was a crazy game completely crazy and I mean like I said I think overall it was a nice way to finish and certainly a dramatic way to finish wow absolutely mad and but the world cup as a whole it's been gone into as much as it needs to the location of it and the way it was awarded and all the rest of it and now the outlook for potentially awarding the 2030 tournament to another country in that region, it just seems like, I don't know, it's, it's not good, is it? The sports washing thing, I think, is something which is completely legitimate to moan about, quite frankly, and just be depressed about. So that 
cast a bit of a shadow over it, unfortunately. I mean, the fact that it was played in the middle of a European club season, I think was seen as being unnecessarily disruptive. But I think maybe it actually made the quality of the football better. Like it's usually tournaments are played at the end of the season where all the players are knackered. But this one, everyone's in peak condition and raring to go. And, you know, they didn't have much preparation time and maybe that had an impact on tactics. But to be honest, there was plenty of good tactical performances by teams. I mean, notably Morocco, also Argentina were great tactically. They completely outfoxed the French yesterday, I think, in a tactical sense. Anyway, this is not a football podcast. I haven't gone about this too much. This week on the show, it's the last guest we have of the year. Final show of the year is going to be on 27th of December and it's going to be me reviewing the year in various different forms. So strap yourselves in for that. Um, I might talk a bit more about the World Cup and that, maybe. I don't know. It's all about the musical side of the World Cup. Did that Singles Club episode, which was, um, you know, if, if you're a patron, you'll have got that. And patreon.com slash official if you're not. But yeah, that's what will be happening in the last show of the year before we get into 2023 and yeah so this week on the show is Fred P who is someone I'd not ever met before doing this episode and these are always slightly different episodes because when you know the person um, it obviously gives an inherently different dynamic and you know well it's a different way of, of interviewing I guess essentially when you don't know the person at all but he's someone whose music I've loved for ages and ages and he's a great DJ and as we find out during the course of the conversation, he's just a really interesting bloke too. He really thinks deeply about things, um, musical things, and I think everything generally. And he's got a really interesting story going back a long way. So this was a really rewarding conversation, I have to say, for me. I really enjoyed it. He's a really nice guy and thoughtful and expressive. And the whole thing was just, yeah, what I want from an episode of the Not Diving podcast, really. So yeah, this is a good one. Right, so if you want to support the show, you can do directly, as I mentioned before, via Patreon, patreon.com slash scuba official. There's a whole bunch of bonus content that goes up there all the time. There's a couple of different tiers, one of which gets you on the Hot Flush promo list. There's not been many promos recently, but going into next year, there'll be tons more. We'll be really busy next year on the label for various different reasons, which I will reveal in due course. Um, but there's also the regular solidarity tier, which is super cheap. And I mean, the upper tier is also cheap. But the solidarity tier, yeah, it gets you the bonus podcasts and uh, various other stuff. So if you want to support us, then that's the way to do it. Hello to all the new patrons who joined last week. Wave, thank you for your support. And um, follow the Spotify playlist. There's a link in the notes. It contains all the music and all the episodes. All the music that gets talked about, or most of it anyway. And join us on the Discord. You don't have to be a Patreon member to join the Discord. So we would like to see you there joining the conversation. We've got a great community of people chatting about stuff musically and podcast-wise. So yeah, hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord for the invite that gets you into that server. Okay, all right, that's about it. This has been a long intro. So, without further delay, here is Fred P. Fred P, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I am pretty good. Thank you very much for having me. Um, yeah, I'm fresh off a flight, so 
yeah, you probably get like the 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 most honest version because I'm in between the two worlds right now. A long haul flight. Yeah, I just came from New York. Okay, right, yeah. landed not too long ago. Okay, yeah, we're going to talk about New York, because that's obviously where you're from, but you're based in Berlin now, right? Yes. Yeah, okay. So we'll talk about that too. But I just wanted to kick off with a question about the way you release your music. This is kind of following on from many different podcast episodes that we've done covering this kind of topic. As preparing for this episode, I was just going through your back catalogue and checking out bits and pieces of it with Discogs and then looking stuff up on on Spotify and on on Bandcamp. And I noticed that quite a fair bit of your music isn't on streaming services. So, I mean, is that a conscious decision that you've made? I mean, how do you feel about the the concept of the streaming platforms and the kind of dominance that they've assumed in the way people listen to music now? Wow, okay. Well, um, to to answer the first part of your question, yeah, it's absolutely a conscious decision because I feel like... This is just my opinion. Um, it's music has its own value and that's determined by the listener. And then there's the value that the artists themselves, uh, determine. And when it comes down to different mediums of how you receive it, even those platforms or systems divide, they, they create a value as well. So ultimately, the bottom line of it is the value system. And, you know, you, as an artist, you can make a conscious choice to see if you're un, in alignment with how that platform or system is valuing your music. And then you can proceed from there. There's no right or wrong to it because these are different mediums, but you can make a conscious decision on what type of information you feed into that platform or system. So the majority of um, my material, like mostly the things from the very beginning that were like vinyl only, is because of the value I placed on those records where I was in life and and what that means to the listener who got it, because I got those DMs that they let me know how they felt about it. So that is something I keep with me. I use it every day as inspiration to keep moving forward. But as time goes by and technology does its thing, I realize that each platform has its place and there's material for those places. So this is why it's kind of like that. Okay. So coming out of what you just said there regarding vinyl, and I guess there's three things here, right? But so there's there's the kind of vinyl system and then there's digital, but then there's the kind of streaming thing, which is a more recent development and is its own thing, I think. And people have quite strong opinions about that in of itself. But how do you see digital music as a general thing, as opposed to doing vinyl only releases, which, as you said, you've done quite a lot of in the past? Well, quiet is kept. Um, I got my start in the digital realm many 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 years ago there was a site called download.com it no longer exists but it was one of the first (laughs) websites where you can upload pretty much anything and people could download it and critique it or message you whatever the case may be and that's where some of the first black jazz consortium stuff appeared and it gave me uh, a lot of insight on okay 
this music is acceptable, where I thought it was not acceptable in traditional systems. And it gave me um, a lot of um, confidence to move forward in what I was doing. And then there was another website, which was the predecessor to MySpace, which was called audiostreet.net. And it was the same exact site, except geared towards music with a different color scheme. And I put more Black Jazz Consortium stuff there. And there was a whole community around it and the whole bit. And that lasted for a while. And from there came some opportunities to do some other digital things when Beatport was coming online. And Soul People Music started out as a digital label. So I have zero things negative to say about uh, music being able to be downloaded by people via free sites or sites where they can support because not everyone has the means to go buy records or even has turntables. And, you know, they should have the opportunity as well to experience the music. Now, as far as the value systems goes, I mean, you're talking about um, the overhead, cost of overhead as far as like making a physical product and the whole uh, list of things that go along with that. And then the pricing of the material itself. I mean, do I think it's comparable? Not so much, but is a give and take because you could reach way more people than you would with a record. And that was the case for me. And um, so I don't really have anything negative to say about it. Because ever since then, there have been other platforms that came online where you can place your own value on what you'd like to present, such as like Bandcamp. You can like pretty much make your price and people can support it or not. And they get a chance to listen to it a couple of times to make that determination. Um, however, when it comes to streaming, now that's a bird of a completely different color because like it doesn't necessarily all right if you look at the numbers like the amount of people that are on the platform and then you take i don't know how they came up with the metric for what a stream is worth but if right <laughs> if, if you look yeah. if you look at that over time yeah it can compound but then at the same time, not everyone is like super prolific to actually gain interest on their streams. So there's a, there's a, there's a bit of a hole there. And then also too, you're talking about this ginormous ocean of music where it's very difficult to be discovered unless you already have an audience. So it's, 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 yeah, there's some inequity, there's, there's some real inequities there, but at the same time, you, it, it is beneficial to be there because you would be discovered by people that you would never actually have access to in the real world. So you have to, in my opinion, at least this is the approach I take. I, do have material there, like like a few of my albums are there. Things that I do um, on Bandcamp are there, and if I have a cool idea for something that 
I might not release traditionally. I would probably do it there. And I, I, I don't have... Um, I don't have it like a, an industry mindset to it. It's more like a blank canvas to me because I feel even though it is a heavily, a very heavy industry focused platform, if you're not a part of that commercial world, you have way more freedom than the people in the commercial world do. So you can attract people that you normally wouldn't attract on that platform, which is one of the main reasons why I use it. Right, okay. And you've self-released the vast majority of your music, right? I'm quite confident in saying that, yeah. Um, So you retain a high degree of control over your back catalogue like that. So it's a great position to be in. I mean, I'm similar myself in that the vast majority of stuff that I've put out, I have done... uh, on my own label and it enables being in that position enables you to make these kind of decisions right and kind of move with the times because I mean a few years ago pretty recently actually streaming just wasn't a thing at all and now it's become this uh, it's, it's almost kind of like eating the the whole the rest of the industry I mean you're definitely right to say that the kind of uh, all the, the less cons- the less commercial ends of the industry has been much less affected by it and you know a platform like Bandcamp is uh if not equivalent like it's 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 an extremely important part for any kind of any any musician who's doing the kind of stuff that we do is like and Bandcamp's crucial thing right and and the people there are people that who use it better than others but I think as a tool to use it's 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 invaluable but I guess my question would be like if if there was someone starting out now how do you think you would or if you if you were starting out now how do you think you would approach these various different kind of models that we've you know we've just been talking about like you know, the from vinyl to you know doing downloads via Bandcamp and then you know, taking streaming seriously to a greater or lesser extent like how do you reckon you'd approach it if you were starting now wow well okay i would say you Look at them as exactly that. They are tools. I mean, you have to look at how people uh, find information, which is mostly through their phone or laptop, and then look at how you use your phone or laptop, and then figure out how do you fit into that space. Because the thing of it is, um, like, if you go back, like, 10 years, man, it, it was so much easier to find good things because the number of things coming out were less. Now, today, it, it, you kind of have to have a, a, a method to your madness or at least have some kind of insight into where to even look for the interesting things or the things that suit your particular fantasy because... I mean, the, there are so many tools available that the, the, the oversaturation of any given genre, not just electronic music, any genre is astounding. It's like throwing a pebble in the middle of the ocean and expecting ripples, you know? So, so it's like, <clears throat> so it's like, um, if I were starting out today, 
I would pretty much, I would first go to where the people are and then listen to what the people are listening to and see if that looks anything like me. And then if it does, well, then I would interact with that. If it does not, I I would probably have a profile there, but I would give more energy to the places that are more relative to what I'm doing. Because um, you, there's no way you're going to get around the oversaturation thing. I mean, today it's incredibly hard, incredibly hard to cut through the noise. And when I say incredibly hard, I'm understating it. It's like really, really hard. I mean, uh, it's just the amount of things that are presented on a daily basis. And everybody's an expert, you know. And and to and to a certain degree, that is true to the individual. They're an expert at being themselves, but we forget the most important thing that music is really a form of communication, and it's what type of a communication you want to feed your brain. So any one particular platform can do it if you can find yourself in it, but. If you do not, then it doesn't really, you know, that's not a wall for you to break down. It's more of a sign of saying, okay, I have to find a space to where I fit. You know, like when it comes down to things like this, this use SoundCloud, for example, 10 years ago, and I'm saying 10 years ago because it was less saturation. Um, that was the place to be. You could put, a mix up, you can put a track up and you'd get thousands and thousands of, of, of streams, right? People would listen to it. Today, it would be like maybe you're lucky if you get like maybe a hundred, two hundred, maybe a thousand, you know? And that's because of the amount of people releasing things there on a daily basis. So, you would take something you would you it's comparable to Spotify it's comparable to that because it's new but their numbers are like i don't know how much more than um SoundCloud but it's the same deal and they get way more music added to them daily than SoundCloud so then you take something like Bandcamp you have much more of a chance at developing an audience because the intention of the listener on Bandcamp is to find something new, is to find something different. So I would say if I wanted to, especially if I'm like been practicing this thing for a long time, like before I present it to people, like I actually have some form of catalog, I would start there. Because it, at the very least, even if your numbers are small, you can still monetize it, whether it's downloads or merch, you can still monetize it. And you, you, the, the, inf the information that you receive back is way more accurate as where with SoundCloud or Spotify might be a bit more transient. Yeah. Okay. Um, the... Yeah, the, the the volume of music is is overwhelming, as you say, and I mean that's something that we've talked about on the show before. And 
like there are obviously like a ton of different reasons for the just the kind of tsunami of music which is coming out every week and it's not just music i think it's all forms of kind of digital like content i suppose for want of a better term um i wanted to ask about one particular aspect of it though which is the like the development of music tech and the kind of reduction of the barriers to entry and making music that people have now like anyone can make a track obviously and like in particular Ableton because I know you're a fan of Ableton I've I've read about you extolling the virtues of Ableton but like Ableton is a very much a uh, sort of democratizing tool in the making of music right it's so easy to use it's so easy to get stuff down it's so easy to to, to pick up and and start moving like I mean how much of a pro- like what well, is it a problem at all that people are able to make music more easily and like how does it fit into this volume thing and and like is this a problem like or is it just something we have to deal with um, I don't really see it as a problem myself personally because there's the reality that, you know, everybody isn't a painter and it's right. it's really what suits your fantasy. I mean, it doesn't matter how many people are making music, it's still only gonna be a percentage of people making music that you can actually listen to, you know. And and when I mean listen to, I don't mean have on in the background as background noise. I mean, something that you keep coming back to because it, it resonates with you. There's there, there's a journey that goes into becoming that. And anyone who is first starting out, there's the excitement of just the ability to have some level of technical proficiency to make something that's coherent. But I mean, after a while, you start getting down to the truth of it. And that's where the journey begins, you know? So, I mean, it'll be this way as long as new tech comes along and makes things easier and easier. The, the challenge for the artist or the practitioner is, um, are you growing as an artist? Because your job is to kind of, you know, bring some light to that path for those coming behind you and attempting to get to the point to where you are. So with these tools coming online, is the experienced practitioner taking these things on board and doing the impossible with them, you know? So if you look at it that way, it really isn't a problem. It's actually pretty exciting because we should be blowing each other's minds on a consistent basis, you know? Yeah, I mean, there's two sides of it, right? There is the influence it has on on the just the amount of music that gets put out. The amount of music that's kind of quite quite good enough is how I usually sort of term it, and and a lot of dance music sort of falls into that category. But then you're absolutely right. Absolutely, man. (laughs) (laughs) But but you're 100 percent correct to say that like the 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 amount of music which is which is you know which resonates with people and resonates just with you know on a personal level. Because it is a personal thing, you're absolutely right. I mean, it is a form of communication and, and the way people react to certain pieces of music is very personal, right? But there is, like I said, a, a big difference between making something which is going to bang in the club, which is good enough to get people going 
on a Saturday night. Yeah, but you forget about those things right right after it happens. You know, like you'll hear a tune and, and, and it'll... Well, it, sometimes it, you it, do, but sometimes, sometimes those moments stay with you, right? <laughs> well, it depends on what you're doing and who you're with and what the vibe is. I mean, there's all these things that come into play. For example, and, 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 and I'll just leave it to dance music. For example, like, I, I mean, when I started going out to clubs... It was all brand new. There was no template. These folks were innovating. And it became a cultural phenomenon of which we are all part of today. Now, is that happening today? No, the business of that is happening today. And it's more of a, uh, just replicating moments as opposed to making timeless things. And that all comes down to... Uh, you know, uh, what I like to call character and value. For example, um, we're all characters on the stage of life. So it's what role you choose. And that all comes down to intention. What do you intend to do with your time here, right? And let's say you want to be the biggest this or that. Fill in the blanks with whatever you like. If that is your intention, and then whatever uh, processes there are to get to that, you'll do. And the results will be something that you yourself can value and the people can derive value from. So when you talk about tracks that are good enough in the moment, that says everything about the intention of the person who made it which derives the character of that person. So then you can know what is what, but it, you know, if it's something that comes and goes, then the intention is quite clear. But then if it's something that sticks around, let's say like French Kiss, for example, I mean, how old is that track? And it works today, the same day it came out. <laughs> yep, yep. You know what I mean? So this is the intention behind the thing. So it's like, if you do, if you figure out like what role you're playing in this giant thing, then you're more closer to the truth than not, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All of that resonates. So, I mean, a lot of what you said there relates to a, a quote that actually I picked out of your biography, in fact, which, in, in which you said, okay, the quote is, the 20th century was big on originality, the 21st century so far, not too much. And, like that's something that I've kind of reflected upon as well. I mean, I, although I'm I'm sort of conscious when I think about it that it's easy as uh, you know someone who has lived through a period like the the, the 90s and the early 2000s to a certain extent. Um, like that was an incredible period of just groundbreaking music being made and genres like just springing up seemingly every week and so much different stuff happening in so many different parts of the world. Um, and it's easy to be cynical about this, the way the industry is now and just calling it an industry says a lot, right? Oh yeah. Um, so I just, I wondered, could you, yeah, just could you expand on that quote a little bit, how you think about it generally? Well, okay. Um, the 20th century was, if you had to compare 20th century to the 21st century, 20th century is definitely analog. 21st century, totally digital. The, you could tell the difference between the two. It's not to say one is better than the other, but you can definitely tell the difference. And 
um, when it came down to the music of that time, you, you got to think about all of the moving parts. Like if you go back to like the 70s, 80s, and even the 90s, in the 70s and 80s, you had musicians and arrangement and writers and producers, all these different people coming together under the under the guidance of an A&R who facilitates the right mix of people. Then... You move on to the 80s, there's a little bit less of that because electronics started to become a, 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 a thing. However, they were operated by actual musicians and they were operating under theory and stuff like that. And engineers were working on making things louder than the next thing. And then you move on into the 90s and they erased all of that, got rid of the groups. And then you got a lot of individualists. But at the same time, you still had good engineering. So loudness still wasn't the key. You had fidelity. You had uh, dynamic, which is a huge deal for the human ear. And um, the the, when it came down to bedroom DJs or bedroom producers, rather, or independent producers that weren't working in multi-million dollar facilities, you were getting very, very interesting music. Then we go start moving into the 2000s. You still have some of the old guard hanging on to the organic stuff, but the digital stuff was just way cheaper to do. Then, you know, the turn of the century. Oh, wait a minute. I don't have, even have to have an engineer. I don't have to like hire anybody. I could just make my own ideas. And then more tools came along in that fashion and it, it just progressed into what we have today. Now, from an industry perspective, if you are um, a, a manufacturer of musical instruments, this is advantageous to you because you get access to a customer base that wasn't there before. Then if you're a software manufacturer, same difference, you know, you get to sell more things, which is better for your company, you know, not necessarily for the culture of making music, but definitely good for your bottom line, you know, because you want to stay in business. Um, but what that does is you don't have, and I hate to say the word gatekeeping because I don't think it's fair, but it's true. You don't get this, um, curated thing anymore. You, you kind of have this free for all thing. And yeah, it's that, it's that, it's that barrier, which isn't there, right? That kind of needs to clear some kind of arbitrary hurdle, which on the, like in some cases, I think can be really good, but then obviously there are inherent issues with it as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. Because the thing about it is, is for example, when, okay, in the case of like, let's say one record being made and one record not being made is based on someone's opinion, but the record that isn't being made could be a genius record that changes the culture, but it doesn't get made because that one opinion said it's not what we're looking for, which isn't fair. So when that disappeared, we got a lot of interesting music, but then we got a lot of not interesting music too. And that's the give and take of it. And then as things became more democratized and digitized, those, the numbers increased, but not so much on one side. You know what I mean? Like there's more stuff that you, you really don't need. And then not as much stuff that you do need. But at the same time, I mean, it usually works out, but it depends on the person who 
believes in what yeah, they're yeah. doing. Sure. So yeah, the originality part for the 21st century is most people copying things that they that that they felt was the example of what they would like to be themselves. And we still have that going on today. Right, yeah. I mean, like when I read that quote, I was just assuming that you were talking about uh, like dance music and the sort of development of dance music from the kind of mid to late 80s onwards. But going back to the 70s and, and 60s and, and those periods, the kind of the golden age, I guess, of, of recorded music for a lot of people, then, then yeah. It's oh, man, complete... that, that, that's the bedrock. That's the bedrock. Because you, you, you're talking about groups, prolific groups, like the Isley Brothers. They put out maybe two albums a year, uh, Earth, Wind & Fire, two albums a year, and, and, and each album is better than the next. Like, they're just going further and further into their thing. But these are not just one person doing it. This is like groups of people with producers, writers, engineers, all working at the peak of their skill contributing to one effort to make one product that people can get into. I mean, that doesn't exist anymore except on the level of, uh, you know, people that have budgets for things like that. I mean, I think even so, even for even for big budget stuff, like I don't think it exists in, in the same way. Because, yeah, when you're talking about like, yeah, so, so like say a, a big band like Earth, Wind & Fire with loads of members and they go in the studio and there's, in addition to them, you're right, there's, you know, there's a producer, there's probably a couple of engineers, there's a bunch of other people around and everyone, as you said, is kind of pulling in the same direction. And when you think about it like that, it's not fair to expect a person making music on Ableton in their bedroom to get anywhere near that level of output, right? It's just, it's not the same thing. No, no, no. These things are approachable, man. It's about your intention. These right. things are approachable. Now, the journey is going from your thing not sounding great to this thing being amazing. That's the journey. It's not the destination. It's the journey. Because no one starting out is good. Nobody. I don't care who you are, you know? So you have to start somewhere. But if there is something in it, and if your intention is really about, like, making this thing that some, that people can really get into, then you'll do what is necessary to develop over time because it's a journey, man. It really is, you know? And in that the character playing this role develops as well. And this is where the attraction powers of people buying into what you are doing comes from because you are really living it. You know, you're not saying, I want to make a track and then play the biggest stage, whatever. I mean, that's the quickest way to dis to really, like, disappoint yourself, you know, because even if you put all the mechanisms and processes in front of that, it's nothing more than advertisement. It's not really a timeless thing because your life's journey is attached to what you put out to the world. It's going to come back to you. And if your intention is that, which is fine, there's nothing wrong with it. But I mean, if your intention is that, you have to live that. You know, now if your goal is to like make a record that people connect with, and share it with other people so they can connect with it, then that is solely about you trying to develop this character into that. And if you do that, then, yeah, you could probably do something pretty special. Yeah, that's an interesting way of looking at it, actually. So is that how you approach, like consciously approach, I mean, making music? 
well, yeah, man, I can't make any other kind of music than Fred P music because I'd never studied theory. I've never went to a music school or anything like that. I went solely off of what makes me feel and then tried to understand what's going on in my world and then figure out the tools that allow me to articulate that. Right. You know, and is a is is a beauty to it because yeah, it does require uh it requires a lot of time. It requires a commitment and you will develop a relationship with um music in a different way than say the person next to you. You know? Mm-hmm. And I cherish that because I love music, man. I mean I have been in an intimate relationship with it for as long as I can remember. And not to say I am the most anything, but I know I'm a hundred percent me. And with that, it's enough because I continue to try to, uh, make it better, uh, find new ways to articulate it. Uh, try to understand, learn. I check out all the new tools. I, I try to learn about them. I do my best to implement them where they make sense. I mean, I'm all about the journey and the records are a product or pieces of my journey. And I do this thing every day when I'm not traveling, I'm writing, you know, and even when I'm traveling in a hotel room, I'm writing, you know, I mean, I need to do it. It's not a want. I definitely need to do it. Yeah, that's absolutely resonating with me. If I don't, if I'm for some reason taken like out of the vicinity of my my working environment or like you know, the ability to make music, it does. I go a bit crazy. Like after a couple of days, <laughs> like yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you are in a relationship with it. You know what it is, and that's the most beautiful thing about the whole bit, because. Everyone can identify with the song that they love. You don't have to be a musician to get that. But what's even more deep is the story of the person translating this information to you. That's very interesting because you can gain perspective from that. Even if you don't aspire to be that, there's something that you can take from this person's journey and be like, wow, I never looked at it that way before. This is very interesting, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you you said that music has been a huge part of your life for as long as you can remember. And uh, there was a answer that you gave in an interview with Will Lynch for RA where you described listening to classical music as a kid and being moved to tears on, on a number of occasions. Um, so, which is something that, well, I mean, I, I was in a household where classical music was played a lot. And I have to say, I didn't, I, I couldn't engage it at all until much later in life. So um, let's kind of step back from this and like, you know, go back to the start of you know, where you grew up and, and, and all that. Can you tell me about your kind of your early years? You mentioned that you grew up in New York, but like how you kind of developed into this passion for what you do now? Um, well, uh, I grew up in Flatbush, Brooklyn. Uh, in the 70s. So, yeah, I'm kind of up there. Um, my mother and father were into music. They both had their own tastes. My father was more into jazz, soul, funk, and reggae. My mother 
was into soul and um, classical and pop. And if you can like meld those together, you get a lot of interesting frequencies and moods. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, I hear this music like all all day, every day growing up. And I really got into radio as well. And I recognized early on there were certain things that stuck with me. Like I was really into like, you know, minor chords and things like that, 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 that have this emotive quality to it. So, um, to, 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 to touch on the classical thing, my mother would really get into, you know, just playing records that had a lot of like strings arrangements and these huge overtures and stuff like that. And it was very moving to me. Like it was, you know, cause you, this is all foreign, you know, and then you start to learn as you go along that, you know, these sounds exist and why don't you hear them everywhere because you want to feel like that all the time so it stayed in my memory banks and um as i grew i started searching out you know wherever i could things that were like that to so i can connect to it but um the interesting stuff really didn't happen until i was like about i don't know maybe 14 15 years old uh, I saw the movie Beach Street, and um, there was a scene where the main character was in his room, and he had like two turntables, ca uh, cassette decks stacked on each other, and you know machines and whatnot. And I thought that was interesting, and that's how you do it. And up until that point, I had no idea how to put any of this stuff together. But I, but I knew exactly what I wanted. And it was to like have these types of sounds on a loop all the time because I liked the way it made me feel. So therefore, after seeing that movie, I'm, you know, people in the neighborhood would throw out like hi-fi systems, cassette decks. I'd see them in the trash and I'd pick it up and I'd take it home and fix it without any knowledge of how to do that, mind you. Really? Wow. <laughs> this is this is um, very reminiscent to my conversation with a guy called Gerald, actually. And he described almost exactly the same thing. Just like going out and like picking up old bits of audio kit and then just like figuring out how to fix them up and figuring out the electronics and stuff. That's interesting. Yeah, absolutely, man. That's that's how you do it in the hood, yo. I mean, you don't have the money to go buy these things. You got to like do what you got to do so i guess yeah, sure. before even knowing the, the term dumpster diving that's what i was doing and <laughs> um but eventually what would happen is I, I had like a stack of three and i would put cassettes in it there was like at the time the version of the 99 cent store that would sell like these really cheap three packs of cassettes and i would buy like two or three of them and I asked my mother for money to go buy these uh, cassette decks. I mean, these cassettes. And what I would do is I would play a portion of a song that had the notes I wanted to hear, record it, and like pause mix it where, which is where you make like um, a loop, 
of the same thing over and over and over again for a certain amount of time and then record to another tape and add something and record to another tape and add something and then take the one on the bottom, put it on the top and start the process over again. I mean, it sounded terrible, <laughs> but it taught me something. It, yeah. it taught me, uh, this was like, without even knowing it, I'm learning how to multi-track. So that went on for a while. And then it, it, it expanded into like doing arrangements with records, like playing the breaks back and adding stuff to the breaks and stuff like that. And then a friend of mine uh, got... So yeah, hang on a sec. Yeah. Let, me, let me stop you there for a sec. What you've just described, were you doing that on your own? Yes, absolutely. And Just from seeing Beach Street. Right, wow. Okay, and, and you didn't have like friends who were into the same sort of thing or was it just a kind of labour of love that you were doing solo? No. Really? Nobody, none of my friends were into this at all. I was, okay. I was the oddball out when it came to that. Um, yeah, this is how I fell into like kind of DJing because um, the thing is, they knew I had turntables. My mother would get me stuff for Christmas and I just built a little setup for myself in my room. And every day after school, I'll be doing these experiments. And, um, you know, when any of them had like a birthday party or something like that, oh, yeah, call Fred. Fred will play music for us and da 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 da. And it started there. Um, but the thing is, um, with these experiments, I recognized the quality level was terrible because nobody would understand what these things sound like because, you know, every time you record an overdub, you know, you just keep losing quality. So a friend of mine got, um, an Amiga computer, right? This was after, this is the version after, no, wait, it was the, I think it was the 128, then the Amiga, right? Right, After the Commodore 64, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. And (laughs) there were music programs for these things. And I'm like, okay, well, I started doing experiments with him and then we start, you know, collaborating back and forth and, and, you know, making things for fun. There was, there was like really no, uh, objective. We were just trying to understand what we could do with the tools and, uh, how to make these things relatable, you know, and, um. And what the, sound sources were you using when you were doing, cause obviously you're using the Amiga to sequence stuff, I imagine, but like what, what were you using for sound stuff? We were like sampling records. Yep. And my friend had a keyboard. Uh, neither of us were, were like virtual. So he was much better than I was. But um, that those were the sources that we were using. And we were basically, and I mentioned this a little bit earlier, we were copying things that we heard that we liked. Yep. And then trying to figure out who we are in it. And then later on developing our own thing. You know? And who and, were you copying at that stage? Oh, man. Anything that was on the radio. You know? Yeah. Anything that was on the radio that had... Uh, an appeal to it that for me those chords you know those blues chords and stuff but i mean um, like what kind of what kind of genre though like because we're oh, in, hip-hop. What, 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 what year are you in now we're like late 80s now sort of thing are we a bit later oh man we're, we're talking maybe now 88 87 because yep. i was still in high school at the time and I, I and I hadn't stepped into a club. I mean, I had gone to like dance halls and stuff like that. Because if you were Flatbush, 
yeah, that's where you're going to hang out. It's at a dance hall somewhere at that time. Um, but the music wasn't that. The music was more or less uh, reggae or rockers and, um, and soul music when, you know, you want to dance with a lady and stuff. Sure. And, um, you know, what was, but what was educational, educational about that it was the isolator and the emphasis on bass and how that translates onto the dance floor and how it makes people feel. And I was oblivious to it at the time, but then years later, it became like a focal point for me, you know, um, but to, 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 to get back to it, um, yeah, this was before even stepping into a club. This was just myself and my friends, like having fun with the tech of the day. There was no inclination to like even think about being a musician. My thing was, I just wanted to hear these tones continuously because of how it made me feel. And, um, yeah, so th it, there was that period, but it didn't take on, um, a realistic form until much later. Okay. Yeah. That sounds like a re reoccurring theme, right? In terms of your, the motivation that you have in music, it's like, it's a kind of emotional connection, right? I mean, this is something that, uh, I've noticed in uh, reading your interviews, too and it's something that you you know you keep coming back to like is there i mean to tell me a little bit more about that is there um well yeah well i i look at music as a language it, and it's probably in my opinion the highest language because you can communicate with anybody without any words man it is nothing more beautiful than that because that crosses all borders you know and um what it is for me is, well, if you're here in this room and you can't take anything with you, then it's all about what you do and what you leave behind. And if this is the case, well, how does it work for people, not just yourself? Because if it was all about us individually, we'd be here alone. But no, we're surrounded by everyone. So then it has to do with some form of co contribution, right? And then, you know, there's the personal journey where you end up in life. Let's say you're partaking, for example, in, in, in uh, art, and there's a culture around that art. Well, then it's about your participation in that. And then what is your contribution to it? You know, so for me and my own personal journey outside of music is, um, you know, what am I living? You know, and for a lot of people, that's different things. You know, you could live for, uh, your, your family, you could live for an ideal, you could live for um, even your career even. But the value is in your contribution to these things. So I have been so much going in one direction where it's 
has, I, I, I would say there's a, a development of a particular point of view about what I have been interacting with for the majority of my life that has led me into the position that I'm in today. And the story of that is laden in my catalog and is there for the people that pick up on it. And, you you know, and these folks get it mm. because they have a similar story to whatever degree. And then there's the other side of that. Right. When I go out in front of people and I present music or translate music for them, then there is that contribution, you know, which is a mutually beneficial relationship based on what we would call industry. And um, th these things all play a role in the bigger picture. So um, my goal in that is to honestly express myself, you know, because if you're really doing it, there's no hiding, you know, you can't hide behind uh, a great post or advertisement or a campaign. You can't hide behind any of those things because when you take all those things away and you just leave the sound, it's what it is. And the intention, the intention is apparent. And my goal is always to honestly express myself and what this means to me. So is, I mean, from what you've just said there, um, it's like legacy a like a powerful motivating factor for you because i mean like the question i originally answered was to do with like the i guess the sort of motivation that you have in making music which is to say that like you you really feel kind of pretty deep emotional connection with the process of making it but then what what the way you answered that question was much more in a, in a kind of um you know how you live your life and what it ultimately will mean at the end of it so is legacy a big thing for you well um i think I, I think well, legacy is 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 a constant, but it's not a focal point. It's not what I don't wake up in the morning thinking legacy. No, I'm just living my life. But I mean, right? I mean, I mean, I suppose like the, uh, the just the term legacy is like I mean, it, it carries some baggage with it, right? And I think like um, I, I was maybe setting you up there for something uh, that was was I didn't quite intend. But like, I mean, do, do you see what I mean? Though? I tell, like, I tell, I tell, I totally get what you mean. I mean, if you, if you, I think if you do it in the way that is authentic to you, that will be the results in any way you look at it, because there, there's nothing, nothing else can be derived from it. It won't be something that is. Um, it's something that will increase in value over time because the more true to it you are, the more apparent it becomes that this is something else. And you should maybe have a look at it or or interact with it in a way that is um, more substantial, you know? Uh, but, I, I mean, this is how... I, 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 I uh, derive m my value as a character in this because, right. um, sure. I mean, I've spent the better part of my life in 
in in this journey of discovery of my relationship with music, with sound. And what I've come to understand over time is that, you know, music is food for thought. Anything that enters your ears, goes into your subconscious, ultimately is fuel for one thing or another. <clears throat> so if you want to feel a certain way or you want to think a certain way or you want to be a certain way, then you're paying attention to these things. Now, as much as I love to, um, you know, do my practice and everything, I am always listening to things that I would say I would term suit my fantasy. And I've, I, you know, and I fall in love. I get jealous, which inspires me to action because it says to me, I need to do better. I need to go further in my processes. It's not jealousy as in uh, antagonistic type of way. It's like, oh man, I'm not working hard enough, which is good because that's motivation and you need that. Um, but I mean, whatever I'm feeding my mind is ultimately for the greater good of me being able to translate both uh, on record and in front of people. Um, yeah, and, and, and th that's a positive thing, you know? I mean, you, you could totally use those same powers to things that aren't positive, oh, you yeah, know, totally. Sure. Yeah. And we yeah. see it all day long, you know? <laughs> So, so I'm ho my hope is that when people listen to my stuff, they're like, man, okay, that's a point of view I never considered before. Wow, it's interesting. That's good enough. But if someone is inspired to action, then I feel like I'm truly being of service. And that's beautiful. That makes it all worthwhile, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so we got to, we got sidetracked there a bit. We, we were talking about your, um, your journey up to, I guess, in terms of like making music and your journey up to doing it sort of professionally, you know, for want of a better term. But I wanted to talk to you about uh, like going to clubs in New York because this is a topic that we've talked a little bit about previous episodes. Um, I know Lavon Vincent is a friend of yours and on the show I did with him, we talked a lot about his um, experiences playing at some of those key clubs in, in New York in the, in the 90s. And I'm fairly sure that you were a, a regular at some of these kind of legendary places. So, so we got to like you finishing high school nearly, I think, is where, where we were well, <laughs> at the end of the 80s or thereabouts. I, w I would say, okay, um, in my senior year of high school is when I started going out to clubs. And my place of my, per my preferred club was the Sound Factory. I absolutely adored that place. I mean, that was, I was there every Friday because, for a couple of reasons. One, if you got a flyer and you were in before 11, it was free. And I abused that system. Uh, <laughs> and then also too, it was like you had the place all to yourself for at least an hour, you know, and myself and my friends would go and we would dance until we were almost unconscious, you know, and, those were some of the best days I can possibly remember because I felt a vibe and energy that 
was absolutely new. Okay, so can you can to kind of jump in there? Can you describe the Sound Factory? Describe the venue for people that didn't go there, including myself. Well, it's this giant black box. This is the best way I could call it. Like if you had to think about a hall, right? Like a in, pick a hall. There was a stage. There was some. Uh, there were spotlights across the top of the stage. Uh, then there's this huge dance floor, strobes everywhere, but it was black, pitch black. You did not see the DJ. The DJ was way off up in an elevated booth. Then if they didn't come to the edge of where the window was, or the frame was rather, you wouldn't know who's playing. Right. You know, so they were not a focal point. The focal point was what was coming out of the speakers. And everything at that time that was coming out of the speakers was totally brand new to me and the most exciting because you got to think about what dance music does to the psyche. It's up-tempo music. It elevates your rate of vibration, which automatically brings you into a positive state. So... If you do that and then you add dancing to it, man, you're in your own world, you know? So, um, yeah, the, the Sound Factory was really, really special because it was like, it was like a break from reality. When you go inside, outside world doesn't exist for however long you're there. And a very special moment for me was hearing the, the, the whistle song on acetate because right. I could hear the crackle yeah, yeah. <laughs> of it yeah. have it been played so many times and I'm like the only other time I heard it was on uh, DJ Disciples radio show right. which I would tape every single week so I would have music to go to school with you know and um, but when I heard it there it solidified everything it's like this is where I need to be because things that I like to happen, happen here, you know? And it was true for for a long time. It was amazing. And was that, um, okay, so just uh, clarify this for me in my mind, because my knowledge of New York clubs, as has been revealed on this show before, is is not, not what it could be. <laughs> so um, is this during the period of Junior Vasquez residency at Sound Factory? Yes, yes, it was. It was Junior Vasquez, Frankie Knuckles, uh, David Morales. Yeah. These, these were the guys that moved me right. there. Did you have, you a, did you have a favorite and, of those guys? No, because you never knew who was playing. Right, okay. <laughs> That's the difference, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> <You know>? okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but the thing is, you, could, you, you would feel, and this is very important, I would really like people to pay attention to this. You would feel the nuance between the three, the difference, you know what I mean? It was right. very slight. The quality, amazingly high, but there was certain nuance to how they would play that would differentiate one from the other, but you didn't know because you never saw them, you know? You just know it was like the flavor was a little bit different this night than it was the other night. You know what I mean? It's like, is this is this is something that is kind of lost today because the idea of nuance doesn't fit into uh attention deficit disorder you know yeah you know what i had um 
David Moalem from Blitz in Munich, which you've probably played at. Have you played there at Blitz? Yeah, yeah, some years ago I had. Yeah, right. Okay, so I had him on the show recently, and um, we were talking about. Well, I mean, like he's a kind of veteran, you know, party thrower you know, having done Bob Beeman before Blitz and he takes the whole thing really seriously. And, you know, I think those classic New York clubs are a big inspiration to him and the way he like builds dance floors and, and, and does the whole thing. Um, and, and one of the things we talked about was the possibility of doing parties without announcing the lineup these days mm, and how, yeah, yeah. and how difficult that that is to do or basically that's, impossible that's, to do right <laughs> so that's 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 really risky man because sure, again yeah. i mean you gotta think about it now we're in a different world different economy is more about attention and shock and awe and then at the same time we're really dealing with the absence of nuance anticipation you know, and actually developing the flavor of a thing because we want everything right now. Because we go in our pocket, we get it right now. Or we go on our laptop, we get it right now or tomorrow, you know? So if this, if this is the expectation, it is really hard to interject the idea of nuance unless people are really with you and believe in what you're doing because you really it's not a matter of teaching it's a matter of reminding people of what's already there it's just we haven't been we we've been on this roller coaster of how we use our attention and i mean there's something so satisfying about right. delayed gratification you know, I mean, the impact of it is life changing, you know, and, and, and this is the, the one of the biggest, uh, I would say sorrows is that I have is that this should be a focal point because then every night can be amazing because it's there. It's all there. All the information is there. It's just a matter of attitude and what your intention is when presenting a thing or developing a thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, yeah, I mean, like in, in, I guess the ability to do something like that, I mean, it's a question of like having the trust of the audience, I suppose, who are going to give you that opportunity i mean there's like there's a few in fact yeah have you played a labyrinth in japan you have haven't you y yes i have and yeah I you say, have yeah yeah that's a very humbling experience absolutely and but russ is able to do that festival without announcing the lineup which is purely due to the fact that he's delivered and on on so many occasions and so many people have been there and have had a great time that they will you know commit to going regardless of who's going to be playing, because they just trust his ability to, to, to put on a good party, essentially. Well, but if, that takes that takes years to, to build up, right? If, if I may say, Russ is committed. And sure. that's a very difficult thing to do. But when you are truly committed, anything is possible. And what he has developed over time is exactly his vision because he believes in it and he invests himself wholly in it. So the quality of it and how it is translated to the people 
that are on the dance floor is awe-inspiring, you know? I mean, I respect it so much, man, because this, this, again, nuance is important, you know? Developing the flavor and the character of a thing is important. It's like, like, you know when you've had a really great meal and a crappy meal. You know when the food was cooked with love and someone didn't care. It's very apparent, you know what I mean? And and I would have to say, Russ is among the best to do it. Seriously, seriously. I would completely agree with you. Completely agree, yeah. I've been trying to persuade him to come on the podcast, actually, but he won't, <laughs> he won't do it. Yeah, but he's an amazing guy who built something so special, man, that, like, yeah, a lot of people could take example from that. For sure. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Okay, so we were talking about New York clubs, right? And yeah, so you picked out Sound uh, Sound Factory. Were there any others? There were that stick out. There were like there were like there were like three because at that time I was just dancing. There were no records or anything. I wasn't DJ. None of that. It was Sound Factory, Red Zone. No, four Sound Factory, Red Zone, Tunnel, and the Pyramid Club. Like the pyramid was a weird club in Alphabet City that I just like because I'm a freaky dude. That's a freaky place. I enjoyed it and it was a lot of fun. Um, then the tunnel because that's where the serious dancers went on Saturday night, and um, Red Zone was off and on. Some nights it was good. Some nights it was like okay, but Sound Factory was home base. Those were my four main haunts back then. And then there were like loft parties that would happen around the city that were like private deals uh, that I would go to. And, you know, I mean, these were the formative years. And when I when I say that, this is the food that fed my inspiration when I stopped going to clubs. And the thing that I missed the most was the music. And that's how I actually got into like figuring out how to do it in a real way. Let me ask you, um, what got you into house music in the first place? Like, what made, what made you want to go to Sound Factory? Well, I got into house music by listening to DJ Disciple. He did a radio show on, on, oh, right, on yeah, uh, yeah. a college radio show, and I listened to it every week. It was DJ Disciple and Stretch and Bob Beto. And I'd stay up all night yep. and record both shows. That's 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 almost exactly the same as me, you know. I I listened to Colin Dale and Colin Favor on Kiss FM in London, and I recorded them on cassette and li- listened to them on my Walkman on the way to school. Ex- exactly, man. <laughs> exactly, and that's really what was the form of how I fell in love with it because he was playing um, Dee Dee Brave, which is an early Carrie Chandler project. Uh, can't get over it. That was my jam, man. I mean, I'd listen to that on the way to school, on the way to work after school, on the way home. Just I would just like run that tape into the ground, man. He played Casio, where all kinds of dope stuff that you can still play today, and it will work just as well, you know. Um, That's what really got me into it. But then what actually got me to go to a club were the girls at my school. Because (laughs) they all went to the club. And I'm like, oh, so this is where they're hanging out. So then (laughs) that's where where it really started. But then once I got there, I didn't see them anymore. (laughs) 
<laughs> it was like, wait a minute. <laughs> what, is, what is this? <laughs> you know? But that's how that actually yeah. started. I mean, I, I, there were there were very few oasis in uh, in Flatbush, so we all went to Manhattan, and that's where the clubs were. Right? Yeah, it was totally different then. Completely different. Yeah. All the clubs are in Brooklyn now, right? Other way around. Ab- a- absolutely, absolutely. Like every single club is in Brooklyn now. It's crazy. Yeah. So when you said the serious dancers went to tunnel, what did you mean by that? Like Madonna's dancers and stuff like that. Oh, right. it, you mean the professional dancers? Yeah, professionals, yeah. Like right, there was one okay. night, there was a battle going on that we didn't dare get involved in. They were <laughs> snatching heads out there, man. And I was like, wait, this is a bit out of our league. Let's just watch. And these, they, oh my goodness, they were beyond amazing beyond amazing and then what was more crazy is that these are the people that we're seeing in music videos and stuff like that so yeah yeah that was a very exciting time because you get like this really interesting social mix you know what i mean like Mm -hmm. there's like guys like me and my friends from this neighborhood along with like execs and models and all these really important industry people and artists and the list goes on and on just like every flavor of society all jamming under one roof and it felt so good it was so beautiful yeah that is i mean that's the acid house dream right and that is the uh the kind of 90s legend um let me ask you about door policies though because like those well i mean my understanding of the New York club scene is that the like that there was always a door policy and, and in fairness there was um at many of the clubs in the UK as well and the rave scene was a little bit different but certainly um yeah like I said my understanding of of New York clubs is that there was a door policy and how can can you well is that true and then and then what was it and how did it affect you guys going in there as as young young kids well the thing is it didn't affect us that much because after a while the bouncers got to know us and they saw us there every week and it wasn't really a big deal it depends on what type of club you were going to you know because like some clubs you couldn't wear sneakers and you had to be dressed to a certain degree but we never went to those clubs we went to clubs to sweat that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to like get all of this stuff that was stuck inside of us all week out. And those are the places that we went. So we, if you got to know the bouncers, man, they made your life easy. Well, yeah, that's you know? always a good way of <laughs> yeah, getting around whatever yeah. is going on, right? Yeah. Seriously. And I mean, they liked us, you know, because, you know, we were kids and we were harmless, to be honest with you. They knew we weren't there to do anything nefarious. So they were always looking out for us. And, um, is, is, I don't think the sound factory ever really had issues. It was when things transitioned over into other genres where it, it, it brought a different element, you know? And, um, that's when things changed. But by that time, we had moved on to other things. What are you talking about but, there specifically? Oh, uh, well, when, you know, it's like, you know, the, 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 uh, Urban nights would get a little bit out of hand, you know, and right. things would right. happen, 
you know when and, when did when did that uh when did that stuff start kind of coming into these venues uh well you're talking somewhere around 91 92 oh okay so 90, still pretty early yeah okay yeah still pretty early but then at the same token though you can't put it on the club because that same element would happen at any club, to be quite honest with you. It's something that went on in New York, period. So, you know, it just so happens that, you know, if it isn't a quote unquote, like urban music night, there's less. That's about it. I mean, this but, is true but these, everywhere. But, the, but and these, like, it's just not, not, not restricted to New York. It's just reality, you know? Like, yeah, exactly. Exactly. But that's kind of what changed. Um, that's kind of changed, like, you know, what we were doing, because the thing is, um, you know, you don't want to go to a club on the wrong night because you, your, your fantasy will not be suited. You know what I mean? So, so it was more, it was more or less just knowing, you know, what night was your night, you know? Yeah. But I mean, uh, I, I would say I was very, very lucky to not ever really encounter any kind of craziness going out to have fun, especially in reference to a club. Cause I mean, at the time, Flatbush, yeah, it was probably one of the, one, it was probably one of the most dangerous neighborhoods to live in. But if you don't know any different, it isn't. You know what I mean? Right, yeah, sure, yeah. So, okay, we're still in the early 90s then. Um, tell me how, you, well, I'm kind of interested to know from from your perspective how that scene in the city, the club scene, developed from those kind of early, like early kind of sort of like acid house adjacent kind of period to something where it has kind of caught on in a bit more of a big way and you know, from your perspective like I guess you felt like you had um like as any kid has I think when you get into something young you feel a sort of degree of ownership over it I think um certainly that was my uh experience of, of when I first started going to clubs in the a, a bit later on than this actually but like certainly like I caught the tail end of like you know the early jungle scene in London and really felt like I was part of it. And then you, you kind of feel slight ownership of it. And then I had a similar thing later on with the early dubstep scene. So how did you feel that the, the club scene in New York developed over the course of like, you know, the, the kind of early to mid 90s? Well, at first, in the very beginning, to me, it was when the term did exist, it was like super underground, like you had to know. And if you did know, then you knew which nights to go and which club on that night was the club, you know? But then as time went by, man, you know, uh, and, and house music got bigger and started landing in Burger King commercials and stuff like that, it started to change and it wasn't as real as it was for us, you know? I mean, it felt like it was, mm. okay, I think it's waning now, so maybe we should find something else to do. But... I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's seriously, because <clears throat> you're talking about like, you're talking about like, okay, there was, you know, you, you, you're talking about like the thing becoming uh, more of um, a money thing, really, and then less of the social progress thing, you know, because that's what made it cool is that all these different economic groups 
we're jamming together. Like we might not meet anywhere else in life, but we met at the club and we were all cool, you know? Um, that, that started to like kind of wane a bit. And then, you know, the, the type of music started like, and I'm not anti any form. Every form has its time and, and its run and all, and whatnot, but it got really into this, this filter house shit that I just never connected to, to the point where I just like was like, nah, this, in fact, it does the opposite of what I want to feel. So I'm not going to be around this. I got to find the stuff that brought me here in the first place. And that was reflected in a lot of different record stores too. You know, there was only a few that kept it progressive in the way of, um, bringing what we love to the table. But a lot of people and a lot of labels jumped on the bandwagon of what was, you know, changing the scene to something else. And it stayed that way for a while. I would say all the way up until about, I'd say about 2000, 2001, 2002. But then there were more. Yeah, I know, I know what you're referring to. Yeah, absolutely. You know what I so mean? Let me start. Yeah, absolutely. yeah, 100%. Let me, let me stop you there, though, because you're referencing record shops now. So by the sound of things, you started DJing, correct? Well, I did start buying records, yeah, for sure. Like, um, my, my um, I, I, I bought my first house record at Dance Tracks, um, my very first, and it wasn't put together and all beautiful as it became over time, it was like this black box with these wireframes on the wall with records in them. And I went with a friend of mine from school and, you know, he was, he was like, yo, check this out, check that out. And I picked up a couple of records and I played those two records to death, man, you know? And yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> the, and, and the thing is that, you know, I, I found out very quickly that like, yeah, you kind of do have, if you like a particular thing, you kind of do have to have a focus because if you don't know, and there was no internet at that time and nobody's advertising this stuff, you kind of had to be involved with the culture in order to find yourself in it. And that was definitely the case when going into record shops, unless whoever is behind the counter sees you and wants to steer you in a, 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 a more informed direction of what you like, you know, you know, and then, and then there's also the records that they got to sell, you know, to keep the lights on and stuff like that. But dance tracks was one of those places for sure. Vinyl mania was one of those places for sure. Um, I used to work at the Gap on Broadway and there was this place called Unique Boutique, which was like a flea market. And in the back, Vinyl Mania had a booth. So like every Friday on payday, I would go there and blow my entire check on like Strictly Rhythm Records and Nervous Records and like Right Area and stuff like that. Like I come home with no money, but I got like all these records and I'm making tapes and stuff like that, you know? Right. And so when you say making tapes, do you mean like with two decks and a mixer? 
Yeah, like mixtapes, man. Because it's like I, I, I still need it to suit my fantasy. Because yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I was going to clubs less and less. So, I, and and I felt the pull of what I needed to hear constantly. So I was like, okay, I gotta buy some records, man, because like, I need this. This is medicine for me. So I need, I need this. So I would go see my man Stewart at Vinyl Mania booth in the back of Unique Boutique, shout out to Stuart, and give him all my money. And he would take it, <laughs> give me a stack of records, and be like, I'll see you next week. <laughs> and, and, and just like clockwork, I was there next week. And, but, the, but the hook of it was, is that he was playing all of this stuff and recreating those moments that I missed so much in that booth. In that flea market. Right. And for that, I'm forever indebted to him because it's the baseline of what mm. I'm doing, you know? Okay. So at what point did you figure that you wanted to start making music? Well, when I did buy these records and I was making these tapes, I was like, man, you know, if it went in this direction, it would be even more cooler, but I can't find no records like that. And that's was the thing that, got me into thinking about how can I do it? I know it's not doing the overdub tape thing. That's not going to make it happen. So how do I actually make stuff? And that led into the next evolution of, um, of my journey, which was education. Um, I had saved money and, you know, I would do trades with friends for like, you know, if I had like, for example, I was into BMX as a kid, and I had a Kuahara Magician, which is a bike you can do all types of tricks on. I would trade my bike for like a piece of equipment, you know, and or or you know, this is what you do with friends. Like they got mm -hmm. some you want, they got some yep. they want, and you say, "Hey, let's trade." And I would start to like build. Um, you know, somewhat of a workstation. And um, and then I start teaching myself, like, how to use this stuff and how can I make this stuff work in the mixes that I, that I was creating from the records I was buying. And that was really the beginning. Like, that was ground zero for, like, getting my musical education because what came from that was an opportunity out of left field that had zero to do with house music. Um, I have, well, my cousin, who was my partner in this project, came to me with um, an opportunity to get studio time. And when I heard the word studio time, I'm like, okay, they will probably have everything I need to make these things happen. So what is this opportunity? It's like, we have to make a demo and if we win the demo contest, we'll get studio time. So ultimately, in the back of my mind is, okay, this is going to be a learning experience. And at least I could see what's in that studio so I know what to get. Because I'm, I'm totally green. I have no idea, right? <laughs> yeah. So we, we actually did win that contest. We did get studio time. And this is, this is how the universe is crazy. Because the engineer in that studio turns out to be the guy who would mention me for like the next 
three, four years. And this is where I got my music education from. Because, the you know, even though that particular scenario didn't pan out, I got my first uh, credit on an actual project being this guy's protege and just being a studio rat and and learning stuff. And, um, yeah, that, that, that was a, that was a whole education that I couldn't, I couldn't ask for because I couldn't afford to go to like the Audio Institute of Technology. I, I didn't have money like that, but I got that. Yeah, yeah, sure. Let me, let me, let me stop, let me stop with that for a sec. Um, the studio which you won time in. Mm hmm. What was it like? Oh man, it was inside this dude's. He, this dude had a loft on 34th Street. I'm not gonna mention his name because who knows what he's up to in life. But I hope he's doing well. My point is, it was a studio in his loft, like back room, and he was attempting to. And this is where the shenanigans come in. But you know, <laughs> it's like he was attempting to like find talent so he could exploit them. Now, ah, okay, so, that that old chestnut, eh? Okay. Yeah, man. But I mean, well, but this is this is the beauty of it because when your intentions are good, good things happen. Um, that didn't work out. But how about Hannah said, what what kit did he have in the studio? Though this is what I'm interested in. Like, oh, what, oh, what was oh, in there? He had like a 32 track board. It was a Tascam. Um, you know, monitors, of course, obvious recording stuff. Like he can record down to two inch, right? Um, yep. but as far as gear, you had to bring gear. And the guy okay. who ultimately turned out to be my mentor would bring like his keyboard and stuff like that. And at the time, <clears throat> at the time, it was a Kurzweil. But this is how we bonded because I had, um, a Korg 01, 01W. It didn't have the floppy drop, but it was a 01W. And at the time, that was like, the, the keyboard to have it was the version right after the m1 so and during a session i bring my keyboard and he sees it and his mind is blown and he's like oh wow this is great blah 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 so then the next session i come back and he has one but with the hard drive on it so i'm like oh wow he's got the you got the drive da, 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 da. and then we continue to bond and over time you know he starts taking me around to gigs he's doing as a musician he's a proper musician and um i get to learn how to mic live and mic in a studio and then you know some engineering stuff song structure all of these things which ultimately landed me and my partner at the time in platinum island studios which is a legendary studio in new york where pretty much everybody has recorded from you name it they've recorded there but mm. they allowed us to have studio time after hours so i'd be there like you know two and o'clock and two o'clock in the morning to like six o'clock in the morning just working on demos and stuff like that and learning how things should sound and how to mix and reference etc etc and that became my musical. what kind of stuff were you making at that point, I was doing hip hop at that time, but proper okay, hip right. hop proper, like though not you know, it was it yeah, was yeah. the real stuff. It was crazy. Sure. Yeah. With an MPC. No, I was using an Akai S950, and okay, the, just and as the, good, just as the, good, and the Korg 01W, man. 
Because yeah, yeah. the O1W is for sequencing, and I was just like getting every last bit out of that 950. But those, yeah, those Akai samplers, those those converters, for some reason made stuff sound good, right? And like pretty much every record of that era went through some kind of Akai at some stage, right? Yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. I was a keyboard guy. I didn't know I was, but I am a keyboard guy. And um, that period was the, oh, man. It's, it's everything yeah. that I do today is based on what I learned then. And, um, th- but... That era, the Platinum Island era was, right. I mean, man, th- there's no words I can put on that. The value is, is continuing to pay dividends today, to be honest with you. So when was that? Oh, man, you're talking from 92 through 94. Like I, right. I, right. So we're still super early. Okay, right. Yeah, loads, yeah. loads of stuff is happening in these these early nineties years. Right. Okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so who? Okay. Okay. Hang on a second, then. So let let, let me just ask you. You're making hip hop. Who were your hip hop influences? Like, which hip hop producers did you did you like the most? Oh no, no question. It was Pete Rock, Showbiz, and Premier. Yeah, Primo for sure, for chopping, Pete Rock for arrangement, sample selection, and mixing, and showbiz, because he's just one bad motherfucker, man. Seriously. (laughs) Seriously. Like, this dude makes... His choices are the most unexpected ever. And it was taught me to be daring in my choices, no matter how nuanced or complex, you know? And, uh-huh. and and that's how I approached it. So then I got this minimalistic chaos that worked for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, okay. you know, people Great. liked it. So well, it was cool. Tell me about, okay, so what? Well, I mean, like, let, let's just try and get from, from making hip hop to making house music. Okay. Sorry. What, what was the, what was the kind of the process there? What was the journey between those two things? Uh, well, it was a bit of, uh, okay, what was it? I won't say it was a tragedy because it turned into a triumph, but the tragedy of it was is that the stuff we were making was so interesting. It got myself and my partner to the door of a deal that did not happen. Now, I'm not going to fill in the blanks. I'm just going to let sleeping dogs be. But, <laughs> okay. yeah, yeah. but my point is, is that the deal didn't happen and I fell into a deep depression because I learned a very valuable lesson that didn't make sense until years later, which is intention. Intention is everything. So I had crazy ideas. And when it didn't work out, those expectations weren't met. So I sold everything in my studio, went and got a job and said, screw music. And for like two years, there was nothing but depression and drinking and just self-medicating, depressive, nonsensical bric-a-brac, for lack of better terms. Mm, And on my job, however... Um, I happen to be on the way to work and I run into a friend from my neighborhood by the name of Jay Locke. And we're from the same neighborhood and I had moved out of that neighborhood like for a long time. And to run into him on the way to work was quite different. And we reconnect 
And the next day, he comes to my job with some cassettes because he's the only other person that I knew from my old neighborhood that was into house music. And he brought me these cassettes from music he had compiled on his travels to Europe. And I had, for lack of a better term, a spiritual experience because I hadn't listened to this music in so long. And I'm on the, the J train going back to Queens in tears because I missed it so much. I mean, when I think about it now, it, it makes me emotional because I, re I remember every moment of it. I mean, you're talking about, oh my goodness, you're talking about like For Hero, we're talking about IG culture, uh, uh, Modaji. Um, Seji, G-Force, you know, everything ranging from ambient to drum and bass to Detroit techno, new jazz, broken beat, house, everything. And track for track, not a mix. So every mood grabbed me differently. And he did this yep. for like a week straight. So every day I'm going home in tears and people are looking at me on the train like I'm having an episode, you know. But what was happening is I was reconnecting to what had been missing. And it came to a point where it's like, okay, I realize I understand what my mistake was. And my mistake was my intentions were wrong. You know, I didn't intend on having a relationship. I intended on using music as a vehicle. And that's right. not what it's, it's for, you know what I mean? It's about a relationship. So I said, it doesn't matter what happens. I have to figure out how I can exercise this thing again. So I started getting like these little pieces of gear because now I am like, like seriously economically challenged, even though I have a job, you know, New York is crazy. And, um, I would buy like little pieces of gear, like boss drum machines and stuff like that, put it in my knapsack and on my lunch hour, I would start just tapping stuff out. And after hours, I would tap stuff out. Over time, I would get more stuff like um, I'd get a computer, I'd start recording stuff. This is around the era where you can burn CDs. This is where that starts to come online. And I start making CD demos and cassette demos, and I would share them with him. And this is, this is how you know you have a true friend. Because for a very long time, at least a year, he was like, all of this is crap. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I was going to say, I was going to say exactly that. Yeah. A true friend will tell you the truth, right? Absolutely. And he would not hold back. He'd be like, yo, I don't know, but. This is not it, right? <laughs> but then yeah. it got to a point where the muscles started to come alive and I was starting to translate. And then I have all of this information that I developed over my education with my former mentor. And it started to gel. It started to make sense and it became a process. And then it started to become a language. And then I made something where he's like, hey, this is pretty good. Can I keep this? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and <laughs> one day he happens to be on the train on the way to his job. And 
he's like really rocking out to it. Like so much so that a guy across the, the train car saw him and asked him what he was listening to. Apparently maybe it was the hi- <laughs> maybe it was the hi hat or something that was sticking out over the top. And he's like, you know, what do you listen to? And he's like, he just gave him the headphones and he was like, Wow, who is this? And you go, Oh, this is my my, my boy Fred. He he did this. And he's like, Oh man, give him my card. Like, really? And then again, this is how I know Jay Locke. Shout out to Jay. Is my friend because he gives me the card. None of this extra. He's like, yo, I was on a train. This is what happened. Here's the card. So I call the man and he's like, you know what? I like what you did. Maybe you should come to this party. I'm like, ah, oh, I don't know about a party, man. You know, I'm not really in the party life anymore. Uh, she's like, it's on a Sunday in the afternoon. I'm like, okay. All right, fine. Sunday afternoon. I'm not going to miss work. No problem. So I show up. It's club vinyl. I'm green. I'm green as the leaves on a tree. I go into the club. I'm sticking by this guy. I'm not hanging out on the dance floor, none of that, because I had sworn off, like, all of everything, you know? And I go into the booth. There's a chair there, and he's like, yeah, have a seat. Relax. Just listen, right? And I'm all for that. I'm all for that, right? So I sit down, and um, in walks uh, a, a gentleman. as We know him today as Danny Crivet. And then uh, in walks another gentleman. We know him today as the legendary Francois K. And the guy who Uh had invited me is uh, is filling in for Joe Cassell. And the party happened to be Body and Soul. I did not know this. Right. Wow. Okay. (laughs) Okay. I didn't know this. I didn't at all. Right. So I'm sitting there in a chair. And man, I have to tell you. Again, very emotional, very emotional, because one, they all played as one, and it was so epic, so moving, that I felt, I felt what was missing, Mm. and that changed, it pretty much changed everything for me, but but really put the icing on the cake is Francois was showing off, man. Because he took like two white labels, did a remix right in front of my face on vinyl, and, and my mind was completely <laughs> oozing out of my ears. It was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. And it was flawless. Like, absolutely flawless. And this, it was the most beautiful thing. And the most encouragement I had received up until that point. So then... After the party was over, I humbly make my departure, but my man gives me another uh, card. And he was like, you should call this guy and give him some of your music. So that began the next leg of the journey because uh, the guy whose card he gave me is the dude by the name of Kamadi, who happens to be my booker today. Um, he was running uh, Spiritual Life, and they were starting a label called uh, Natural Resource, and he thought I would fit into that. I, I mean... Yeah, I, I okay, let me, let me just stop. Let me stop you there for a sure. minute. Let me stop you there. Um, body and Soul, 
mm-hmm. body and soul. I have I know Francois quite well, and I've played Deep Space on a number of occasions, but I've never been to a body and soul oh my party. Goodness. So, can you describe body and soul and why it is and was in that uh, era particularly okay. so special? All right, and I don't I don't know if Francois is going to remember this. He might though. I don't know. I'm still super embarrassed about it, but it is what it is. Um, after that party, right, I did go back, but I went back w- without anybody knowing I was coming back. And I just wanted, because I wanted to stand in front of the speakers and, and, and to see what was there. And when I say I had a spiritual experience, it was like a 10x spiritual experience. Like I was like an outer body experience. And I can't tell you what went on. I just know it happened. <laughs> okay. So to, 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 there's no way to describe body and soul, man. I mean, like, first of all, you have like all of that musical experience. So there's so much information to pull from and then to create a, a, a narrative that can really, really like save your sanity and lift you into a better place, man. I mean, up until that point, I had not ever had the experience of hearing Joe Casol work an isolator because every time I went, he wasn't there. You know what I mean? So it was like Danny and at that particular day was Danny, MKL, and Francois, and it was epic then. So then, um, after that, the, the, the next time I had the experience was at PS1, and you're talking about 7,000 people all like transcending into a whole nother dimension. And then I had the experience of Joe Cassell working the isolator. And man, I mean, you're talking about like Hendrix level excellence, man. (laughs) You dig? Like, like utterly. And this is when Reg came out and he like pretty much like did a like his, I mean, I can't even describe what he did to that record. He elevated that record to the point of everyone had to have Reg and play it. <laughs> you know what I mean? And this is what Body and Soul became for me. Like, this is like where you go to check yourself, man, to remember what it's right. about. You know, you, you, anytime you feel like you start spinning out, go there and check yourself and you can bring it back together because it's the 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 purest form of what this thing is you know and i was eternally grateful for how i came into it because it couldn't have happened any other way that is true to my personality and a type of person that i am you know very different from my formative years cuz my intention and outlook on life was different but when i got there my outlook on life was right around where it needed to be to take the next step to where i was going so sorry how old were you at that point oh man oh my goodness and you make me think about that oh uh i don't know i was roughly 20 something i maybe mean, maybe around somewhere around Mm, 26, 27-ish. Yeah. Ish, because yeah. to be exact. But these things are intricately connected 
because um, when I did yeah. call the number on the card and I went and I started submitting demos and stuff like that, there was a whole nother education going on because, again, I had to learn, okay, as far as my relationship with music, that's one thing. And my attention with that is one thing. But then when it comes down to the business of being a part of uh, a larger industry is the lesson of learning expectation. And again, this is before we get to, we're, we're talking about probably the AOL era. You know what I mean? So right, yep. information wasn't so readily available like that. And, um, but what it did do was exercise my muscle to develop things rapidly and um, tighten up my processes. And um, I received some really good feedback because what I was making was so personal that I had to learn to dial it into where it would be relative for people to understand. I mean, I still, I still have this music, right. man, and it's, it, it's like, mm, yeah, it, it could be jarring, you know, but at the same token, you would have to think about what Miles did when he decided to go electric. It was jarring, you know. So, not to make the comparison, but it's the idea of being daring and honestly expressing yourself. Yeah, no, I understand what you mean. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So, we're nearly at the point at which you start putting stuff out, right? At like uh, the, the, the black. Kind of, kind of, sort of. Get, getting towards that stage anyway. <laughs> like, 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 like from that point to when I actually started doing stuff, like something like 10 years passed, bro. <laughs> I, I'm going to say that I can't be right. Maybe it is right. Actually, I'm just figuring it out. So yeah. Right. Okay. Cause we, cause, cause we're, cause we're talking about like, like, mm, let's say like 97 to 2007. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. So how how do we get there? How do we get how do we get from one point to another? Well, it's really simple. It's really simple. It's not isn't that isn't that as I mean it's not as exciting as the rest of it, but like ultimately the 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 record didn't work out. Although what what I did learn was the my how to get control of my expectations, and then also to how to be prolific. Because I was very prolific when I was doing, um, when I was in the genre of hip hop. Like, man, I was doing demos for everybody. I, I got beats everywhere, you know? So that only translated into when I was doing my more personal thing and started getting into uh, dance music. Because, yeah, I need to write every single day all day if I can. And I was writing during my lunch hour. I was writing after work and stuff like that. And then eventually I left that job and I had more time to write. So I was writing a, a lot more and they received a lot of demos from me. And what I took from that period after things not going the way I anticipated it to go was that, yeah, I, 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 I could, I'll have to figure it out myself because, you know, um, everyone's story isn't the same. So from 
that period up until about 2007, um, living in Queens, you know, doing um, various jobs and stuff like that, uh, I get an email to uh, do a remix for Jennifer Mayanja. Now, Jennifer Mayanja was a part of a party called Hamsa that I went to a lot because they were playing all the music that I love to this day. And I, I respect her highly. She's an amazing artist and beautiful person. Long story short, when the opportunity came, I pounced on it because I'm like, Jennifer, absolutely, I'll do it. Doesn't matter what it is. It's Jennifer, I'll do it. So, um, and that opportunity came from her husband at the time, Just Ed. So we did all the rigmarole, Ed did the remix. She loved it, he loved it. And then he offered me an opportunity to do something on his label. And then he told me like, you know, you can start your own label. And he gave me all the math on how to do that. And that's where things actually started for me because I did my first um, CD album as Black Jazz Consortium, which was uh, Reactions of Light. And my friend Jay, who worked at Dance Tracks at the time, him and uh, Jackie Summers, who's one half of Analog Soul, they both sold the shit out of that album. <laughs> like, they really, really, <laughs> really supported me on that. And that gave me some encouragement um, where I took a single f from that album, put it on a 12-inch, and Ed remixed the version and Jennifer remixed the version. I put it out. It did well. I was able to make another one, which was uh, the No Looking Back EP, which was the second release on Soul People Music. Up until that point, Soul People Music was digital, and then it was no longer digital. Uh, uh, no Looking Back did really well, and um, things started to turn around. And then I did my third record, which didn't do so well. The distributor sent back half the stock, and I thought it was over. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, let me let me stop you there because I I, <laughs> I uh, recall reading your reminiscing about that in a in an interview earlier earlier this afternoon in fact and um, that's a that's a harsh lesson to learn right but it's a lesson that everyone has to learn at some stage but it sounds like I mean, you, I mean you've learned it more than once as you've just been describing right you've had a number of setbacks throughout your sort of career throughout, throughout your you know your journey to, towards this ultimate place but like it never gets any easier right when you have a real kind of kicking the balls like that right no it doesn't it, 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 that can't ever be easy especially if you put it like that no there's no easy way for that because the, the thing is like when they sent half the stock back i'm sitting there in the living room looking at this huge box and it's every day it's a reminder that yeah <laughs> Like, nobody likes this, you know? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? So, yeah, there's no, no avoiding it, is there? It's yeah, it's like, it's like, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you, how do you come to terms with that one? But what was funny is, and this is, again, this goes solely into character and value because at that time I hadn't chosen a character to play on the stage of life. I'm just kind of like 
living, you know? I hadn't defined what I'm living. Um, it was more instinct than anything else. And I was going through a lot personally. Like, my relationship was coming to an end with with my lady at the time. Um, I wasn't working. And I had put all my ducks in this one basket. And then when that box came, that basket was looking at me like, hey, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's like choices in life, you know. So the the energy of that time felt it felt difficult. And the thing was, what, what was more about it is that I was also suffering, too, from like uh, like my alcoholism had gone way out of control like way out of control and so it seemed like it was all spinning out but luckily you know there were some good people around that helped me you know come out of that and in that process of coming out of that i had to answer those questions like what character are you going to play and what are you living you know and mm. one night I'm laying on a couch. This is summertime. It was ridiculously hot. We're talking about uh, 90s in New York with humidity is like almost like 102. And yeah, it's that's a, horrible. Yeah, it was, it was, it's like that. It's hardcore. And it's a, 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 a tremendous thunderstorm going on. And there all of these pressures on me. And I got up. I went to my to my keyboard, and out of frustration, I'm just banging on it, um, because I didn't have any answers at that time, and I couldn't answer the question, the character question. I couldn't answer it, and I banged on the thing so hard I broke middle C. Right. To this day, middle C still does not work <laughs> on that keyboard. Um, but when I recognized I broke it, I started tapping. Um, the keys and it was on a, a piano setting and it was the piano line to New Horizons and I just followed it and I wrote New Horizons that night from beginning to end I wrote it in that night during that storm and I put that together with a couple other tunes which was um New Horizons What's Up with the Love and uh I Could Feel It that became the New Horizons EP and that record came out and changed my life like my life happened hasn't been the same since Yeah yeah like, that's the I mean again this is something that I I, I knew about but I mean it's it's I think well in in many in the careers of many musicians like there's a turning point like that and you kind of you can I think you can almost see it coming or you can feel it coming because when you make something which you know is going to connect it's just kind of obvious and is that how it was like is yeah. that what it was like I had no clue man okay all I know is I was at the lowest point of my life I was super depressed I had no answers there was no options sure that's that's that's, is too that's, not, that's not quite that's a, not quite what I mean let me let me clarify that I mean how you felt about the actual music that you'd made though when you were making it because it, I mean did it feel different did it feel like this was going to connect no what it felt like was what I was feeling at that moment 
And that was the oddest right. thing for me because even to this day, people say, oh, I love that song so much and they had no clue what I was going through. Right, okay. You know? But okay. then, but that defined the character because right. the only character I could be is Fred. And Fred mm -hmm. honestly expresses himself and that's what you get. And that's what that's what that song meant. That's the thing that made the character, and the value of that character is what people tell me is what they got from that song. So that is where the journey became real. Because then the proof of that was what happened after it came out. Because when the record came out, oh, everybody loved it. I had to repress it right away. And on top of that, give me those records that we sent back to you. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> that that's exactly how that happened. And then but, I, but hang I, on a sec. Let, sure. let me ask you though. Like, so, so was that a surprise? Because it, it was. I mean, you must have known it was good. N no, I did not. I had no clue. Really. Wow! So it was a total bolt from the bolt from the blue. Having well, that level of um, gone. I mean, I can't say to to this day because I know my experience attached to that song. What it was, it remind I rem reminded of it like it was yesterday. In fact, I I I mean, in its entirety, this song now is over ten years old, and I maybe played it twice for four right. people. You know, because I'm so attached to that moment, mm -hmm. you know, and, but see, that's the thing about it, man. That's what makes it real for me, because it's like, okay, this is exactly what you do, because you are this person, and you express this way. It might have taken all of these different circumstances to culminate to bring that out, but that's what it is. Now, what you do with it is entirely up to you. You have the choice to like forget what you learned to this point and be something else, or you can honor what you've learned to this point and be who you are. And I chose to be who I am because since then, I don't know how many releases I've done, but it's all a part of the same story, you know, it's ebbs and flows, ups and downs and all of that. But there's things that you can definitely get food for thought from, you know, there's some more things that are like maybe more intricate and then some things that are more dance floor friendly, but it's all a hundred percent Fred. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's so interesting because I I was so yeah when when I said that when I said uh, when you're making something that's going to connect, it's obvious. That was completely coming from a personal experience, right? And it's something that I just took to be mm -hmm. self-evident. But I mean, of course, everyone's experience is different, right? I mean, obviously it is. Uh, but I mean, I I my equivalent experience i guess of, of making tunes which uh which which connected and which changed my life was i mean i can't say that i was well i don't know it's, i mean I'm, I'm trying to think about the headspace that i was in when i made them but i was certainly um i certainly had periods where i was extremely unhappy in what i was doing 
and that became not a mo- not, not not motivating in of itself but became something which in hindsight maybe was a sort of like required condition for making that music uh and you know that's not to kind of like rec- you know that's the kind of you know, the, the cliche kind of struggling artist kind of thing or like you know you have to suffer to make great art i mean i don't think that's true but equally like being in a bad place can provoke uh a degree of creativity which is unique sometimes i mean it's you know it definitely doesn't happen all the time absolutely not well but I, uh, yeah i'm i'm sorry, sorry. If, I, if i could just interject for a moment from what sure. i ascertain from what you're saying is that like okay you're already past like your ten thousand hours and, and you could you could speak fluently with with your art and i think when those moments do come about and there's nothing more that you can do except express it in the only way that can bring you some form of peace you know what i mean because there's nobody you can really talk to to get this out and there's no place that you can go to be understood but then when you turn to your art and it's there for you like when you think it it's there you know and 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 it's only when you are a true artist that you can get that across that's when those things happen you know in my opinion because no absolutely i mean it's going it's going back to what you were saying about having a relationship with music and how how that defines what you do i mean that that's it isn't it because there is there is nowhere else you can turn absolutely and but in my in my opinion what you're describing is exactly that like you being 100 percent you and 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 then you can look at that after that period and see everything all the circumstances and everything that made up that moment you could see it like it was yesterday when you listen to that piece that's art my man right there you know because someone else can listen to it and see themselves in it and get something yeah. from that and feel that and resonate with that. And then you hear these people say things like, oh, man, yeah, I've been listening to this song for 20 years because they see themselves in it. You know, why do we listen to music from 30 years ago? Because we see ourselves in it, you know, and this is the human thing that is important about art is like, you know, there's all the things that come with it. Yeah. And we got to do that. And that's cool. And we can. But at the core of it are these things that make it real, not just for ourselves, but for everyone who comes into contact with it, man. I mean, we all have problems in life, and sometimes a tune can turn the tide for you when you need it. And it can come from a source you would never expect, you know? This is what makes it so important. So if to circle back to your earliest question, what you know, if I could impart anything to uh, a young artist coming about is to uh, maybe believe in themselves and believe wholeheartedly in what it is they want to contribute, but make sure that their intention is straight, their expectation is straight, and that they're honestly expressing themselves from an authentic place and not look at it as a vehicle, but as a means of communication. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Okay, so, right. Before we finish, there's two specific things that I want to ask you about, um, which are unrelated and are quite discreet from everything else that we've been talking about. So 
you live in Berlin now. Yeah. Right. When when did you move there? Uh, uh, 2012. I mean, I had been right. traveling back and forth from like I think 2010, but I settled in 2012. Okay. So recently on the show, uh, we had Seth Chonksa on, and we we're talking a lot about. We had a long conversation about the nature of dance music in of itself and dance music culture and the influence of Detroit in particular in 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 his instance but just like you know, the 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 people in America and you know, largely African Americans and Hispanic people who were the quote unquote originators of the music versus dance music culture quote unquote culture which is largely a European phenomenon um, so first of all, do you agree with that kind of broad characterization? And then tell me a little bit about moving from somewhere like New York, which is obviously a you know, key place in the development of, of, uh, of dance music to somewhere like Berlin, which is a kind of, you know, which is a cultural, you know, epicenter of the scene. Globally. Well, okay. I would say this, when it comes down to like, like my experience, I have experienced love on both sides but i've experienced the most love here in europe in fact my career didn't take off until i got here and it didn't take off in an inorganic way it it took off because of what i was producing on records and people connected with those records and my goal from the beginning because i I i love making records I believe there's, you know, I grew up on it and I believe that's, you know, my medium. I really love it. And um, most of of the attention from my work has come from and still comes from Europe, Europe, Asia, you know, South America and whatnot. And how that translates to the overall story or narrative of, um, you know, people of color and its origins as far as electronic music and subgenres thereof. Um, I, I'll be honest with you, I have done nothing but benefit from the fact that people are open-minded to that and open-minded to, you know, uh, to the point of promoters used to think that I came from Detroit and I would have to correct them. There was one promoter put that shit on a flyer and I'm like, dude, I'm not from Detroit, man, you <laughs> right. know? I mean, it's so so that does kind of like bring to light the 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 certain level of uh fetishization of the phenomena yes. of yeah. Detroit and then the separation of um the actual people that made that phenomena real and their ability to have visibility in today's current uh, climate, you know, I mean, it's something that has happened all along music altogether, but to keep it on electronic music. Yeah. There's a lot of inequity there to be real, to be super real about it because, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I would say I'm a unicorn, you know, to be honest, because I still to this day can't believe I am where I am. But I believe wholeheartedly that it is because of the, the the character I have chosen to play and be committed to 
as far as my journey goes, you know, I mean, there's something to be said about that. But on a whole, if you look at it from, let's say, an industry perspective, the percentages are way off, man, you know, because there are so many amazing artists and that are people of color that, you know, you, you don't know anything about, you know, and who's to say what are the mechanisms that are standing in the way of that. I mean, today it might be a bit easier to uh, change that because there's so many tools available that you can get involved with to like kind of bring things to a more equal playing field. But then when it comes down to decision makers for stages and stuff like that, as that's that's a completely different story and, and it will require, um, I think, a bit more of a community uh, involvement in changing that, you know? Because seriously, man, I mean, I, I, I love this genre in particular because of what it does for me personally as a person listening to other artists. It doesn't matter who they are, where they're from. If they're doing something compelling, I'm into it. However, the representation of that going the other way, yeah, that is, that's a conversation that should happen simply if you are really about this life and you love the music and the culture, then you should want to see a bit more of that. Um, I could speculate what the reasons are, but I can't be a hundred percent. Because you're getting off of music and you're going into a whole other type of psychology. You know, that is attached to commerce and art, which has been a time immemorial battle, you know. But when it comes down to this scene, yeah, I mean, you know, you got to look at a thing for what it is and see where you fit in it. And then when you can or can't, you can kind of deduce the reasons why. And it might not necessarily be personal, but at the same token, it's like, you know, uh, it's not something you can avoid. It's very, very obvious. You know what I mean? Um, but then again, I'm speaking from the perspective of a unicorn. If that makes any sense. I don't know if that makes any sense. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I absolutely, I hear you. I understand what you're saying. Totally. Well, I mean, if if I if I if, if if I can, all right. Let me see if I can like clarify it a little bit. Like, I never expected to be where I am. Like, there was no plan to move to Berlin and be an artist. Mm -hmm. Zero. Okay, but I have been here for over ten years doing that. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, even still to this day, I'm like, I don't. I, I I'm I'm still in awe of it. So my perspective of it might not necessarily be from a historical sense of the inequities of the music industry, you know, but then sure. there is no, that that's not denying the inequities of the of this particular music industry that, yeah, there's that conversation should happen and, and there should be some action attached to it, because when it comes down to people of color, whether they be from Detroit, New York, Chicago, and the list goes on, I mean, 
it, it should, the representation should be there for not only the current creative class, but then the next creative class. Mm -hmm. Because, yeah, the, its origins started here. I mean, it started out as danceable R&B that, that transformed into a commercial product called Disco, which transformed into a commercial product called House, which transformed into a commercial product called Techno, which trans transformed into this other thing where it has, it seems like it has no connection to where it started or how it became. And, uh, that, yeah, that needs to be rectified in my opinion. How to do it. That's, yeah, that's, that's, that's a, that's a, that's a community, that's a community effort in my opinion. Right. And yeah. how, and how does that work? How do you define community? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's easy to say when you, when you're talking about clicks, but when you're talking about as a whole, everybody that participates at a, as a whole, how do you define that and then define it in the sense of industry? How do you define that? Yeah. It's I mean, very like difficult that, that, question. that word participation, I think is, is really important. And it's as, I mean, it's as important, I think with the, the conversation that's gone on around sort of gender diversity as well, which has mm, been a big, mm, mm. you know, talking point, and I've talked about this a lot on the show. And I think um, just getting more more involvement at all levels is as important as anything else, you know. And I think it's not just on the performance side either. I think, like in the kind of like the back end of the industry, so the people who are running the labels, the people who are promoting the parties, and all of that is I think just as important to be honest and it, and, it, and if anything is more unequal like it's all like I don't know I mean I, I imagine this is similar for you but like when I go to a party and you know wherever it is in the world the promoter is almost always a white guy almost always like <laughs> with very few exceptions right oh absolutely I can't I could say I can count on one hand my experiences where it has not been like that you know, yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, okay, all right. That is that that that, that is an, a very important perspective to look at. But then, at the same token, from my perspective, that is the case, and yet I'm there, so I have to take that into consideration. You know, so when looking at that on a more broad spectrum. This is where the community, the definition first of the community itself, and it's not in a sense of policing or anything like that, in a sense of, like, this is a community of people that can talk about this in a, in a meaningful way that can have influence on maybe balancing that paradigm a bit. You know, I think, which is a much larger thing, because, again, you know, it seems like even though it's all one industry, everyone is operating in their own orbits and we see these issues, but yet there isn't a collective system or operations or mechanisms to address it in a way that does not create more conflict around the subject. I mean, it could really be simple but only if we make it simple. And, it, and that would come from clear definitions of what these roles are and who are the characters in these roles that will participate 
in shifting the paradigm to an equitable degree for all parties involved. Because I like when it comes down to the math, I understand why it goes the way it goes. Like if you're just talking dollars and cents and bottom line, I, I get it a thousand percent. At the same token, it doesn't mean that still can't work if you rectify that. It doesn't mean that at all. You know, but I would understand the fear because that's really at the core of it because you don't know if the acceptance will be there. But I say, hey, man, if you honestly express yourself, it's going to work out regardless of uh, whether it is fear or whatever, because that's at the core of all of this stuff. So I don't know. It's a matter of intention. You know, I mean, it's, it's a very, very large idea because, you know, there's so much history attached to it that it's like it seems almost too big to do that kind of lifting. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's much bigger than just the music industry at the end of the day. Well, I mean, this is just my opinion. I mean, no, I, I, I agree with you 100 percent. I completely agree with you. I mean, I, I think that I mean, you're right. It's, it's a huge issue and it's not confined to this little detail really that we're talking about you know it's like it's relevant to us and what we do for a living and the kind of culture that we participate in but ultimately these things are reflected all throughout society right well yes absolutely and and, and, and cause that type of paradigm shift is definitely a community effort no question about it and and, and, and activism to actually bring that community together to have a single uh, a, a, a singleness on it to where the needle actually moves because we can talk like this yeah. forever. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, it'll, it, it, it will really come down to what we actually do. You know? Yeah, 100%. 100%. Okay, right. Last question. This is the last question. So you've talked a lot during the course of this conversation about the way your music making sort of interacts with your sort of emotional life. But I wanted to ask about DJing and how that fits into that. And, so, and I and you know, DJing is basically, I think, in the context of this, and for many people who make dance music, DJing is basically performance, and it's their way of expressing themselves directly to people. So tell me about the way you approach DJing and the way DJing affects these kind of personal kind of interactions with what we've been talking about. Hmm. Okay, that's interesting. Um, okay, well, I could only speak for myself when it comes down to uh, that. Um, all right, um, I'm an I'm an artist that writes music based on my connection to it and how that affects or is occurs to the world is is one thing. Now, when it comes down to the music that I am into that affects me in a certain way is completely different from how my artistry might work. So this will be considered food for thought. And when it's time to go in front of people, I still do the same thing. I honestly express myself, but this is only based on my ability to get out of the way of the music 
I am um, privileged to present, you know? Uh, so there isn't an approach because to give you the short story, I used to clear dance floors in the beginning. And it's because I was standing in the way of, you know, it was just like, I'm going to show you this and I'm going to teach you this and I'm going to influence you this way. And all of that was just clearing dance floors because it was like my ego and my intention to impose my way of thinking and what it should be on people. And then as I matured and learned from some really, really amazing and great people about how to get out of the way of the music and let it have its way, did I only learn how to be that for people? So that is my approach. It's not, it's not even a matter of like having a program or a set list or anything like that. The, the most preparation I do is knowing where everything is. Because in a dark club, the last thing you want to do is not be able to find what you're looking for because the impulse will come and you need to know where that thing is at in that moment because that moment will pass. And then it's not right anymore, you know? So it's like, I mean, it's, I guess, for lack of a better term, how well you can zero out, I guess, if you could put it that way. Because it's, it's more of um, a translation deal than it is, uh, you know, um, then it is like, you know, I'm going to do this type of set or that type of set because there's different, there's, you know, there's different moves to different grooves, I would suppose, you know, I mean, I, 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 this is what my journey has taught me, you know, there's lots of people who have a different approach and that approach is amazing. And there's a lot to, a lot of value to get from that. But what has, uh, been the path for me is the path of service to the music and the music yeah. is for the people yeah 100% agree well listen man this has been awesome really enjoyed it thank you so much for your time it's been great no thank you I really appreciate you taking the time uh, I really enjoy your podcast a lot of great episodes and you're really doing something amazing because there's a lot of value to be derived from what you're bringing here and I'm grateful to take part yeah that was Fred P pretty long episode this week I like the ones that go long like that kind of natural length or well, the natural minimum seems to be about 90 minutes for these things. But then sometimes you get ones which just acquire a life of their own and just naturally go longer. And we're well over two hours in this one, which was great. It was really interesting all the way through. I could listen to the guy all day, really. So many thoughtful takes on different things and such an interesting story as well. You know, I just, yeah, I, I found it really really engaging all the way through that conversation and i hope you did too yeah so as i mentioned at the top this is the last guest episode of the year clearly this was the first year of the show this is episode 50 actually so thank you for listening really it's been a extremely rewarding thing to be doing every week we started in january 
and committed to doing it every week. You know, I knew it was going to be a lot of work and I anticipated it to be fun, but I didn't think it was going to be this rewarding. So yeah, I'm really glad that so many of you have got so much out of it. I get messages every week from people saying how much they like it and people, you know, talk to me at shows. And this is the first thing they say every time is that I love the podcast. So yeah, I'm just glad that you enjoy it, listener and other listeners or listeners in the collective sense it's on radio you're supposed to talk to uh talk to the mic as if you're talking to one person but it doesn't really quite work in this instance anyway anyway if you want to support us directly then you can as i said at the top of the show patreon.com slash scuba official we would genuinely be grateful it really does help a lot and we've got expansion plans for next year, which are going to require a little bit more funding. So if you want to help us do that, then yeah, we'd be so, so grateful. If you can't do that, that's fine. Leave us a review or a rating wherever you're listening to this podcast. Just follow the Spotify playlist, link in the show notes to that. And join us in the Discord, join the conversation, join the community of people. Uh, invite to join that server is hotflushrecordings.com slash discord. So do that. Right. I think we're done here. I'll be back next week for the final episode of 2022. I'll see you then. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.